Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I am here on a, a very momentous day. I am staring out over the Las Vegas Strip just a few hours before uh, the entire strip will be turned red for the red alert restart. Uh, hashtag we make events. I am excited today because normally we are an industry of helpers and supporters. Not like us to be the ones to ask for help or support. We're usually the ones to go and and help out. We're the ones that have things that we're we're the providers. We're the ones that exist behind the scenes to help the people who need to get their message out. And for the first time that I can remember, we are the industry that needs some help. We are the industry that needs support. Our industry has proven to be terrorist-proof, recession-proof. We've been very fortunate in the fact that our our industry bounces back really quick and it has a very high level of elasticity because we can adapt and we can can, uh, pivot and we can... We're very uh, guerrilla style, ready for anything. And uh, for the first time, we've found something that brings our industry to a screeching halt. And uh, we know it'll be back. We don't know exactly when. Uh, We don't know exactly the steps to get better, to get back to uh, live events. But uh, we know it's going to happen. And we just, uh, we need a little bit of time and a little bit of support from our local community and even some politicians and anybody who can help us out. And we're a, a team that are uh, an industry that employs over 12 million or over 12 million people directly. We, uh, we contribute over 1 trillion annually to the U S economy. And uh, currently 95% of live events have been canceled due to this pandemic. I'm seeing people having to pivot. I'm seeing people having to leave our industry completely. And, it, and it's sad today makes me very happy. It's going to be great to see a lot of solidarity and uh, use our tools and our, our skills to show the world that we, we're here, we exist, and, uh, and we need a little bit of help. So that being said, I'm very excited because Amanda is wearing her red shirt in solidarity. I am joined today with Amanda Valdez. She is an architectural and entertainment lighting designer at Shop 12 Design in conjunction with Steelman Partners. Thank you so much for joining me today. What an honor. Thank you so much for having me on such a memorable day. Yeah, a beautiful red shirt you have today. Thank you so much for showing solidarity. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, um, me and my coworkers, we're going to grab our TRXs and any spotlights we have in our garage and we're going to light up the facade of, you know, one of the 
one of our design buildings tonight and we're really excited to be supporting oh, this. That's nice. <laughs> yeah. uh, I've heard that there's something uh, fairly large planned for UNLV today as well. Uh, I'm excited to see what's going to happen over there. Uh, I don't know if it's really made it out into the into the social media yet, but there's going there is something large planned for UNLV. Oh wow! Very exciting. Yeah, yeah, we're all coming together. It's 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 so important right now to to call your congressman and you know talk about the Restart Act and extend PUA.org and really just sort of put the information out there. Right now, we're so saturated with education and you know sort of doing the work in terms of like bringing awareness to so many causes and it's nice to finally see our cause being highlighted right now and everyone just generally coming together it's great yeah it's a tough one there's so many causes out there it's really tough to get yours moved to the the forefront but i think we have a large enough industry with enough brothers and sisters who are very well motivated right now to get our cause out there so absolutely it's, it's inspiring it really is it's it's we're such in a in a, a momentous time right now to 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 be so unabashedly afraid to ask for that help right like everybody is just sort of in it right now and um our industry really is such a family right what we absolutely. do is so so nuanced um so yeah we're excited to 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 you know light up that building tonight <laughs> yeah. i don't know if it's my my gender or my affluence but i was always taught to not ask for help uh, i don't know if it was because uh, it's just my father was one of those but uh, the older i get the more i'm seeing that uh, everybody needs to ask for help uh, i didn't used to be like that and now as i get older and i and why i hopefully wiser <laughs> I don't have the same stigma against asking for help anymore that I used to as a, as a younger kid. Did you, did you have to come to the same conclusion at any time? You're like, man, I, I just need help. Uh, it's, that's always such a sensitive topic, right? Um, especially being a woman to, to ask for help is kind of adds another layer to that. Um, I mean, I think it's hard no matter what, but if you come also from a background of education or like myself, like I've been teaching for actually just about a decade now, um, everywhere, like high school, middle school, college now, um, when you kind of have a background in education, internally, it's hard to ask for help, but externally, it's like, well, this is part of the process, right? Mm -hmm. Like as a professor, as somebody who's trying to um, you know, help pave the way for the new generation, right? Or Gen X or, or what have you, or excuse me, not Gen X, Gen Z. That's um, right. We're, that's a, it's Gen Z now. <laughs> it's Gen Z. Yeah. Those are the kids. <laughs> those TikTok kids, those smart TikTok kids. Um, it used but, to be the millennials were the kids and now they're the ones in their thirties. Here, here I am. Yep. Millennial. Yep. Yeah. Just yep. old and in student debt and here we are. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I've been teaching for so long and um, I guess kind of circling back to that question, I've tried to, I've tried my entire career and my entire um, process to not think of it as something negative, um, but to think of it as a positive way. Um, 
it's just, yeah, it's, it's important to, to ask for help. It helps you get ahead. If you feel like you're not getting the answers or the information that you seek, it's, it's how else are you going to get it except just to allow yourself to be vulnerable in that moment and to ask the right people yeah, and to sort of take advantage of it too. Like, you know, take advantage of the, the great minds that are in the room. When I work with, when I've worked with designers um, or, you know, just a company in general that I really look up to, it's, it's, it's why not pick their brains? You know what I mean? Like why, why not? <laughs> Absolutely. I used to think that it was a good trait to think you knew everything. And as a teenager, I think we're conditioned to think, I think it's in our DNA that we, we have to set ourselves apart and we have to show that like, I'm not a dumb kid anymore. I know everything. And it's not until you make a mistake, you're like, oh, I don't know everything. And then that's the, the, the realization that as soon as you can put that ego aside of knowing everything that you're like, man, I need to ask so many more questions. I don't really know anything. And it's kind mm -hmm. of this, roller coaster if I know everything I clearly don't know everything and then I think I'm an expert again and then I then you get into specifics and you're like oh I don't know anything again and yeah uh, imposter syndrome is a real <laughs> it's a real phenomenon let me tell you <laughs> I feel like you know you can't really escape it you're always going to have those moments of imposter syndrome where you know sometimes you feel really strong about certain situations like yeah I'm, I'm, I'm going to walk into this space I'm going to program this or I'm going to focus this. Um, but then it's okay to just sort of admit like, wow, I, I'm not even gonna, it, it, it kicks up, you know, that, that feeling of maybe I don't know everything. And um, especially in the classroom, when a student is like, what do you think about this? I am 100% full transparency in the classroom. I'll, I'll respond with saying, you know, I don't know. Why don't we figure that out together? And that sort of allevi alleviates and the, the imposter syndrome and humanizes the conversation, I guess, that we're all sort of in this together. Let's find the answers together. I'm not an expert. I'm an expert in some things, but it's, a, it's great to be surprised and admit when you're surprised, you know, it's true. It's important. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, my wife's a teacher and she says the same thing. She's like, that is the most honest useful answer that a teacher can give is like, I also don't know the answer to that question. Let's, let's find out together. And I hear her saying it to my, my kids all the time because my kids are eight right now and they ask them some of the most interesting questions. And oh, yeah. that's, that's the go-to answer. Like, you know, I also don't know. Yep. Let's find out. <laughs> Those seven and eight year olds, man. Yeah. Cause I, I used to teach that grade too. They're so unfiltered. It's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes the things that fall out of their mouth, you're like, whoa, you know, that's actually quite brilliant, but you don't know that it's brilliant yet. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Sometimes my wife and I, we have to like hide our faces away. I'm like, oh my God, that is a really good question. And I don't know how to answer it quite yet, but uh, so the fact that you're thinking about that is amazing. It's so great. <laughs> so I, uh, you and I went out to dinner recently in Las Vegas and we had a great conversation. Some of the stuff that we wanted to just definitely cover because it was like, man, that is definitely podcast worthy. It's one of the things I find most interesting about uh, you and your job career is that you started in stage 
and then found that you were able to apply those exact skills to architecture. Can you kind of fill me in on how, let's go into your origin story just a little bit and then how you ended up where you're at these days. Sure. I, I got into lighting, I would say a little later on in life. This is going to sound really uh, cheesy and cliche, but <laughs> I, the light sort of kept trying to like find me, I guess. I, I never really imagined in my wildest dreams having a career like this. I think it all sort of started with, I, I dated somebody when I was much younger. I was like 18, 19. And we would go over to his house and there would be some really cool pictures of him and his, his, my ex's dad and, you know, with David Bowie or Duran Duran or um, my, my uh, ex-boyfriend's sister. There's a picture of her when she was uh, a baby sitting on Stevie Wonder's lap. And I'm like, what does your dad do again? <laughs> And, you know, my, my, my ex at the time, he was like, he's a lighting designer. He has his own company. He, he tours um, with David Bowie and, you know, like the heavy hitters. And I just, I've always been musically inclined growing up as a kid. So to me, that was just wild to, to sort of be exposed to. I thought, wow, like, that's really cool. So I think that was sort of my first introduction to this sort of field. And sort of like really having it marinate in my brain that this was a career. And um, then I started, you know, acting in, in high school and college. And I was, I was primarily an actor. And always found the, the combination of lighting and sound to be so transcending. And really just helps isolate that person on stage in a moment. And really heightens that moment. And I never could really understand what that feeling was like or why I felt the way that I felt when a light spotlight hit me. Um, and then I started playing music. I actually dropped, I, I quit school for a little bit and tried to be the, a rock star for a minute and toured with a band for about four years. We had a, we were signed to a label out in Brooklyn and we were touring South by Southwest and like doing all that fun stuff. And again, I always just kept coming back to the lighting of the stage. And I was just like, okay, like I'm going to eventually go back to school um, and I'm going to figure out why I keep sort of coming back to this feeling of lighting and stage lighting and why it's so elusive, why it's so, you know, just sort of magical um, because me not being able to put my finger on it was bothering me. <laughs> and so I went back to school I went to uh, Cal State University, Fresno, which has a great undergraduate stage lighting program and just stage theatrical program in general. I learned so much from that program and I'm so grateful for my mentors over there. And I took a class in stage lighting, started working as an electrician in my early 20s. I was about like 22, 23. And I was like, yep, this is it. This is, this is so cool. This is I love this. I want to keep doing this. And so, yeah, I started uh, designing little pieces here and there uh, at school and simultaneously, you know, um, doing theater, dance, and uh, it was come time to graduate and I was applying for master's programs and 
something in my gut was like, keep doing this. Like, even though I was, I personally, I still felt really green. You know, I was still learning so much and had only been an electrician for a couple of years and designed only like, you know, two or three pieces. So I was really nervous, but I knew that I had to follow that feeling. And so, um, I mean, long story short now, I just Las Vegas city of lights. Here I am, <laughs> you know, and, and freelance Fresno then is that what brought you to the West coast was the uh, Fresno. I've always been, um, I've always been a West coast brat. <laughs> I've always been a California baby. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, I, my family and I were originally from the Bay, but I did primarily grow up in central California. Um, and there's something so great about the schools and, and my education in that area too, because it was, you know, you, it, it wasn't saturated, like going to a school in Chicago or New York, like if you wanted to do this thing, you could do it. You know, there, there right. wasn't sort of a, a waiting list. You just, you know, I, I, at Fresno state, I said, I want to design the show. And my professor was like, great, you know, Good. and <laughs> you're yeah, fired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> great. The end, you know? And, um, I know that a lot of other universities, um, have a master's program where, you know, the, the undergraduates feel like they need to sort of wait in line for that experience. And, you know, it's, it's sort of underrated, I guess, uh, the, the education in California, but specifically central California. I, I learned so much from that program. It was, it was a small program, but that was sort of like one of its perks is you could do anything you wanted. Scenic, Lee, lighting wise, acting, et cetera. Right on. Yeah. So the, the way you described it wasn't nearly as trite as I thought it was going to be. I mean, you were actually, it, it, like, it really had to soak in. You're like, oh, my God, this, I'm on stage right now, and the lights are hitting me, and I feel, can you, can you feel what the audience was feeling when, you, when, a, when a good lighting cue was hit during, the, during your shows? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was almost, like, therapeutic is how I can describe it. Interesting. You know, yeah. You know, a lot of people, um, a lot of technicians don't tend to go the wonky route that I've, uh, I did, you know, <laughs> I, I, it's usually like, nope, I'm, I'm not a stage person, which is totally fair. Um, as I get older, I'm like, wow, I'm really not a stage person anymore. I can't imagine being on stage anymore. <laughs> I like being behind the curtain, but you know, when I was, when we were playing music or, or we were doing, doing plays or shows and what have you. Yeah. I mean, when that light cute hit and there was the, the ambiance of, of um, haze and, you know, great sound. I mean, really, you know, all the trifecta of all of that really felt to me sort of elevating and helped transport me to just like a calm place. It was. It was very like <laughs> therapeutic, I guess. Nice. That's <laughs> yeah. good. That's that's awesome. That's uh, being on my side of the console my entire career. I've only heard artists come to me when they're upset or they're not feeling very right. therapeutic from the lighting. Usually, they come out to me when they're like, "Hey, you're blinding me," <laughs> or "Hey, why wasn't the why wasn't the the light where I was?" I'm like, because that's not where you're supposed to be. Your special's over there. Like, find well, your light. Find your light. <laughs> yeah. 
and that's usually when, the, when they come to us but uh, for you to come in and say hey no that was that was a moment that was all that's uh, that's good to hear yeah it, it made me it really made me want to do that for other people I was like wow this is such a magical feeling I want to do that for other actors or creative artists or musicians it was it was it was it's yeah such a strange phenomenon to feel i mean you're always going to get like <laughs> you're blinding me or yeah, you know <laughs> yeah, it's because i'm trying to blind you <laughs> it's just i'm working here give me a moment like you know, i'm sketching out the canvas chill <laughs> uh a much uh, much older more experienced me is going to totally answer that question so i'm like yeah i know i'm trying to so i don't <laughs> you just need to be patient okay um, when <laughs> when you were in the band, were you the person that would go to the lighting person or the lighting uh, guy of the day and go like, hey, you guys, so in this one, I want uh, this look or this this look. Was that ever a thing? Did you even, were you even that aware then? Um, I, I think I was mostly still unaware. Okay. Um, I mean, when you're, we were really fortunate enough to play venues where the lighting was incredible. Um like South by Southwest is an example of you get some really great venues or you get like a hole in the wall or the middle of the, you know what I mean? Like the corner of the room. Exactly. Um, So yeah, I mean, I just, I I didn't really, no, I didn't really go up to the lighting designer. I, I even knew then that it was going to be awesome no matter what it was, because when you're, starting out as a struggling starving artist type band you know and you're just playing any venue that you can get your hands on you're not really requesting those kinds of things you're just no. trying to get your foot in the door and say like hey um you know i i would really love to to play here and like you're trying to just network and that kind of thing right um so no i, I never really approached a lighting designer like that um i always just trusted them you know, and it's it's really important to trust your lighting designer, to trust your sound designer. Yeah. Um, I know it can be nerve wracking, but you know they're there for a reason, and they they have the experience, <laughs> and you just kind of have to let go. <laughs> yeah, it must have been quite an adventure going from being hardly aware of what a lighting designer does or is to being one, and then teaching it. Yeah, it's it's you go to live shit. Well, back then, pre-COVID, you know, seeing shows. Oh yeah, now it's like it's ruined for me. I'm like, oh, why they do that? Or oh, that was kind of interesting. Or what well, interesting palette for that song? I don't know. <laughs> Red um, green, you chucklehead. What are you <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but you know, I, I try not to let it. <laughs> Um, ruin my experience because live shows it's it's still an experience so try not to let the the technicalities like bog bog me down in the moment so <laughs> just try and enjoy so now you've been on both sides of the console you've been on the the rock star side and you've been on the ld side thanks to fresno and uh and then you went for the masters so now you're out of school what was your first foray into the professional world you're like yeah this let's see what this is all about can i get a job doing this i started working at a local manufacturing company here in town 
Um, I had a couple of jobs lined up. Uh, one actually was in New York and I really wanted to try and make that work. Um, it would have been for broadcast lighting for CNN and that was, that was going to be so great, but, um, I had a lot of life events happen simultaneously. And so it, the big move felt unfortunately not right in that moment. And so I was struggling to find work right out of my master's program that was nearby. Um, and I ended up landing in a small manufacturing uh, company, LED company that I, I'm not too sure actually if they're even still around. I think they might be, but it was sort of my first ex sort of experience with not stage lighting, but on the more commercial side of lighting, you know, in terms of uh, industrial lighting, high bays, selling uh, uh, wall packs, understand putting together ma matrices, um, diving into photometric programs to give to clients wow. um, and using products like Dialux. And I was doing that for a little bit. And then I found Shop 12. And it's funny because my, my boss is, was actually my um, professor at UNLV for interior lighting. And so when I, I needed help with some I had some questions. I asked for help. Um, I, I had some, <laughs> see what I did there time. Good one. Good one. <laughs> I asked for help. I, I had some photometric questions and I was like, you know, I'm going to ask my professor and he's the owner of shop 12, um, John Champelli. And he was like, yeah, he, he walked me through some, some of my concerns. And when I knew that there was an, an opening happening, I thought, you know, I think I would be a lot happier at this firm because everybody that I work with comes from, um, the theatrical lighting like this, you know, it, 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 this is definitely much more arc entertainment. And I think I would be happier here. And I've been with shop 12 now for a couple of years and, you know, I teach on the side and the rest is sort of history. <laughs> wow. So I know that there's a lot of people who think that when people get out of mass out of a master's degree, they think they're going to go straight into big time design, or they thought that they're going to go straight into broadcasting for CNN or something. It doesn't sound like you had that same uh, false expectation. You're like, no, I'm I just got my master's. I'm going to go, I'll get whatever I'll, I'll take whatever I can get right now. Yeah. I think it's important to keep an open mind. Um, I mean, dream big by all means, right? Like that's absolutely, but, um, it was, it was more personal for me, uh, just sort of the amalgamation of, of events that were happening, um, in my life that it, it felt like if I had made that big move, it would have potentially been, um, it potentially would have had a negative impact on my mental health. Okay. Uh, so it was like important to just you know, uh, maybe do find that opportunity maybe somewhere down the road and just focus on the now and focus on staying close to home. And uh, I'm really glad I did that. So, I mean, everybody's experiences are different. I did imagine big things and I still imagine big things, but what's important is, is being able to, um, you know, just find things that work for you in that moment that don't break your back and, you know, support you mentally and 
it's just really important to to take those opportunities that make sense for you in that moment, I suppose. And staying in Vegas for a little longer made sense for me in this moment. Cool. Yeah, I should I should have pre-qualified that one. I'm not saying that you shouldn't dream big. I, I am <laughs> saying that just getting fresh out of uh, fresh out of a master's program is not the experience necessary to hit it huge yet. There's still a few steps to be taken. You still have to go work in a shop somewhere. Oh yeah. You have to make the connections that are outside the outside the school. Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, realistically, you know, you yeah, it's gonna take some time. It takes years. And, and to be honest, like a lot of people in the industry do tend to look at, um, students fresh out of master's programs and may, might even turn them away, you know, because it's Mm -hmm. not, there's not enough experience under their belt or I guess it really depends. You know, some people look at it like we want more experience from this person, not just theoretical, um, experience, but like, have you, how long have you been a stagehand? On the, on the flip side of that, you know, people in the industry could also look at a student and think of it as a malleable experience. Like, this is somebody that I can teach. This is somebody that I can show personally how the ropes work. So it really, it, it can be either or. I've had both experiences where I've worked with a reputable company and they're like, yes, we love students. We love to teach them. And um I have applied to jobs right out of my master's program and have been denied because, you know, it's just the simple fact that I'm too fresh out of a graduate program and they don't want to take that risk, which is, you know, Mm -hmm. understandable. So it's just really, yeah, I just had to throw out all my cards and just pick and choose, hopefully, which ones made sense and applied, applied, applied. And it's, it's, it's scary. It's a scary process. And then Shop 12 found you fairly, fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And uh, how was that for you? Because it sounds like you, your entire experience of lighting before that was from the rock and roll side. And then for uh, an architectural firm to find you and go like, uh, do I still get to do rock and roll? Right. Uh, um, how'd that feel? It was, it's definitely a different world. There is a fair amount of crossover but there are a lot of things that are approached differently in the land of architecture than stage lighting. Um, what's sort of great about Shop 12 is that uh, we, we do high-end hospitality. We're currently um, putting up, you know, Resorts World and Circa. I'm, I'm, we're sort of in the midst of pros, uh, programming the exterior facade of that right now. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't that difficult of a transition, I guess, um, just because there's there's a fair amount of bleed over. Working in high end hospitality, there's going to be um, some some banquet rooms or some maybe like a, a a stage. Maybe the hotel has a built in venue, so there there is there was a fair amount of of crossover that was helpful for me um to grasp yeah it it wasn't as as jarring again it also helps that everybody i work with comes from theater has a master's in theater we all you know are big music lovers and so we all sort of speak the same language and i I feel very fortunate in that regard because not all firms are, are like that even though most architectural lighting designers 
will likely have a, a, a theatrical background. Right. Um, you know, th- there's still those firms that come from, you know, like they, they don't really necessarily take um, theatrical students. Maybe they take more architecturally trained students who went to Penn State or Parsons. Um, so, you know, I, I feel very fortunate to have this kind of family at Shop 12 where we all, we, we all have sort of the same similar path going okay. from theater to, to architecture. And it is fun. Like with, with programming um, the exterior facade of, of Circa, you know, that is when our fun, you know, entertainment side comes out and we get to sit and program and play around with chases. And so, so there's a fair amount of crossover, cool. which is really nice. Uh, so coming from my side of the industry, which is primarily rock and roll and, uh, and theater, which you, you also have a, a background in, I have never considered a nine to five job even being possible outside of like a sales role. But it sounds like you have that. It sounds like you still get to play with blinky lights and program stuff, and you can still maintain a nine to five. Is that uh, is that something that you sought after, or is that, is that just a perk that you get to experience? <laughs> yeah, I, I never imagined in a million years that I would, you know, be in this position and be so fortunate. Um, because yeah, our life is all like our. our entertainment industry is all about the hustling and the 1099s and the freelancing and the live fast and which I love, you know, and, and sometimes Frank, quite frankly, miss sometimes, you know, um, just because architectural architectural design is a slow burn. It's totally the opposite. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I, I never could have imagined working a nine to five and also playing with blinky lights. <laughs> Um, I've always sort of been a sponge when it comes to education. I just want to absorb everything. And, um, you know, when, when this sort of opportunity landed on my plate, I was like, cool, you know, I really want to learn what it's like to, to be in this world, in this architectural world. It was really cool to work in the commercial aspect of lighting before I joined shop 12. And that was cool to absorb. So, I'm just a big fan of if the opportunity presents itself, just try imagining yourself in it and see if that's something of interest to you. Um, you could learn a lot. I've learned so much just by bouncing around and ex- and bouncing around different um, different uh, of lighting fields. You know, it's everything. It has a similarity to it, but there are still a fair amount of differences and. Yeah, I'm just I'm I'm feeling very fortunate to be in this nine to five, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I never would have even thought that that it existed until we explore our industry and we kind of realize that using the lighting to create emotion doesn't stop at the stage. I mean, you design lobbies and mm-hmm. vestibules and even every nook and cranny requires the functional side of lighting, but it requires somebody with the, with your background to create emotion in those random spaces. I mean, even, well, maybe not elevators, but I mean, even elevators, when you're in an elevator, you still need, you still, I mean, if it's, if it's dark in there, you can, 
there, there is an art to elevator lighting, I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it, it is, what's nice about working in architectural lighting is there is a psychological and emotional aspect to it that you still need to address. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Richard Kelly is sort of, of our Stanley McCandless, right, of, of lighting, stage lighting. Richard Kelly, who also comes from stage lighting, you know, has, the, has these um, three things that he goes by in terms of architectural lighting applications. And, you know, the three, the three things are focal glow, ambient luminescence, and a play of brilliance. And the way that he theorizes these three things is very much how you would apply lighting a play or lighting a stage. You know, you have to think about, you know, the space. Do you want to make it bigger? Do you want to make it smaller? Do you, do you want it to be a public space? You would light it a lot brighter. Do you want it to make a, it's the space a private space? So you would, you would dim the lights more. You would play with levels. Maybe there's more red light. Maybe you want to play with warmer colors. Um, and when we look at a new design in architecture, lighting designers often do have to take those sort of stage lighting-esque principles that Richard Kelly talks about. Um, so focal glow, he, he mentions, which is essentially, you know, what's going on in the room? Like, what is the task at hand? You want to have a spotlight for, for, for these particular elements so you can highlight them like a piece of art or, um, you know, maybe somebody is working at their desk or, uh, you know, we, where is the spotlight and where does it need to be in terms of like what action is being taken place in that space? Um, so how can we, how can we spotlight the, the main things in the room? That's focal glow. Ambient luminescence he describes as sort of a he describes it like as a as an ocean of of water it's very like blanket of light um that's considered your general sort of like down lighting your your general ambient light um that fills in the space and his play of brilliance or otherwise known as sparkle is essentially like what is what what is the um how do, you, how do you make the space even more three-dimensional? How do you make the room give it that oomph, right? Maybe you add a, sh- add a chandelier. Maybe you, um, you know, what, 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 is, what, is, what, can, what can you do? What can you light to make that place sparkle? Um, and oftentimes it, it's a pendant. Oftentimes it's, uh, like I said, a chandelier. So he likes to describe play of brilliance as, you know, going into Times Square and just seeing all the glitz, you know, uh-huh. how can you, how can you make the space more three-dimensional and appealing to the eye aesthetically? Um, and I feel like that has a lot of crossover to theatrical lighting too, because ambient luminescence is essentially like your acting areas. You're just kind of getting your wash of light. Um, your focal glow is essentially your specials, like who were you hitting in this moment? Um, and your play of brilliance is, is what are the practicals on the stage or um, how can you just add a little texture to, this, to the stage? Like maybe you have some LED tape lining something. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's really interesting to, like I said, live in um, 
the duality of both worlds because they're different, but they're also similar. It just depends on how you want to look at it, I guess. Yeah, that's amazing. I, that uh, the play of brilliance is when people ask you, well, why do you need that chandelier? And the, the only answer that can be given is, well, because it's awesome. You know, well, look, the, the room is lit. Uh, I can see everything I need to. Why do I need to spend another million dollars on a chandelier? And the only answer is, well, it's because it's awesome. You know, if you want people to remember this vestibule, this, this lobby, you need something awesome. You need something. You need a play of brilliance. Yeah, it'd be weird to not have that in Phantom of the Opera. Like, nah, we don't need the chandelier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, well, well, I can see all the actors and I can hear all the actors. Why do I need to drop a chandelier on the audience? Well, because it's awesome. <laughs> because it's dope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise people won't remember that they saw this show. If, right. If it, without the chandelier in, in the lobby, without... I mean, what would Times Square be without the lighting? You know, it would just be another, it'd be another intersection. Right. You know? Yeah. It's, um, it's really important to add that sort of interest in a space. And it, you know, it, it helps a space not feel flat. Um, you know, and it creates a sort of, I don't know, it just makes it pretty, which is why I guess, you know, the other nickname for it is Sparkle. Yeah. Um, I'm a big sucker for, you know, going to see a play or, or, you know, just a show in general. And it's, it's just, you know, littered with really cool sconces or, you know, has a lot of cool architectural elements to it that really, that really highlight that play of brilliance that really adds that sort of dimension to the space well so one of the things that uh, always highlights the differences for me between stage design and architectural design the two or three architectural designs that i've done the time frame has been mind numbingly knuckle draggingly slow and how do you deal with that how do you how are you able to bounce back and forth between the two knowing the, the the workflow is going to be so different. Is that jarring for you? Honestly, Chris, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank I, you. Yeah, Thank I. You. <laughs> Thank you for commiserating with me. It's tough. <laughs> it's really, it's it's really difficult to um, live in the slow burn of of the process when you know you your entire experience is like get in, load in, set up, program, go, 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 um, tear down, go get a beer, the end, on to the yeah. next day. And like, I, I just, I love that fast pace of tours and like being like on the road and the where, what's the next venue we're going to go to. Um, even just like, if it's just a straight play or a musical that's only going to be showing for a couple of weeks at a conservatory or something, even that still has like a fast process to it in mm -hmm. and of itself. So yeah, I, I had to have a lot of conversations with my coworkers and my, my fiance who, you know, also works a nine to five in this crazy arc entertainment type industry. And I had to be like, I got nothing done today, but I think, <laughs> I, I think I got something done, but I can't tell. And he would just have to look at me and just, you know, Amanda, this is what it is. Like they're baby steps. They're really, really small micro 
<laughs> baby steps. And yeah. then once you get closer, guess what? It's going to change and you have to adapt. And I'm like, well, I can adapt to change pretty well. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just dragging, just super dragging. But then once it's done, you're like, wow, that was three years of, of work, <laughs> four years, whatever. Three years. <laughs> so in, in theater and stage and rock and roll design, when I have a, a focus note on a punch list, if it, if I get into the next day and that hasn't been fixed, hell will be paid. Mm-hmm. Their heads will roll. Like, why didn't that get focused? It should be a five minute thing. Yeah. But in the architectural world, I would put some things on the punch list and it would be on there for three or four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, yeah, that's, you know, we have to get somebody to sign off on that. We got to get the proper person in here. We got to get the permit for the lift. We have to uh, cross confirm with the different uh, contractors and like, yeah, we'll get to it. We see it on the list, but I mean, that's number 892 on the list. So <laughs> sit tight, Chris. I'm like, well, can I just go up there and refocus it? No, no, you cannot. There is a process. Yeah. And you're like, Oh man. And it, it always made me want to just call up my roadie friends and be like, come on, let's get in here. Let's do this. <laughs> It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't. And it can't work like that. Yeah. There's so many hoops. Like you, you hit the nail on the head for sure. It's, yeah, it, there's a lot of politics that is involved. And like you said, there's a, there's a, that person's supposed to do this thing, you know, this commissioning schematics, like all this stuff. Like there are phases for a reason and you have to follow them. And, um, I have to turn that part of my brain off and of, of being impatient. You know what I mean? Like once I, once yeah. I feel like I'm getting impatient, I'm like, okay, Amanda, just <laughs> calm down. <laughs> I'm just going to do this load schedule until, you know, my eyeballs fall out for the next two or three years <laughs> or, or redraft this space like five times. Um, you know, and it, it's, it, it teaches me patience, I guess, you know, it's just a different way of doing things. It's, it's so bizarre, but um, it pays off. It eventually pays off. It's just a longer, slower burn. <laughs> it does. Uh, one of the things that I really do enjoy about architectural design is how many different people will have their input. And when that, it, when everybody is of at least a similar like mind trying to, with the same vibe or the same general outcome, people can usually see eye to eye. And you'll get input from so many different facets of our industry. Marketing will have a say. Uh, the architectural team will have a say. The maintenance team will have a say. And that part is always makes me feel good. It feels like we've made more people come together and, and we listen to so many more diverse opinions on a project. I would imagine that's something that is a constant effort uh, without, <laughs> without using a, a worse word for it. I, I would imagine that's something that is a constantly plaguing you. Uh, that was not the right word. It feels like a plague sometimes. Just so <laughs> many people want to impose their opinion upon you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Theater and entertainment is a very collaborative process. Architecture is is an absolutely collaborative process. There just happens to be 
even more people, you know, um, yeah. involved, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it's important. I, I will say that it, it is really important to, you know, get the opinions of your client, of course, first and foremost, it's really important that they feel comfortable with the project and they, they, you know, sign off on it, of course, but also, you know, your interior designers, just like in, in, in theater, you know, in scenography, when you're working with, uh, scenic design and lighting design, I mean, those two elements really have to be best friends, right. In order for a piece to work for Broadway or for a play or, or musical. Um, it's the same thing with architecture. It's another important opinion that you really do want to hear from or hear about is from your interior designer because there are things to consider like ceiling reflectances, surface reflectances. Um, you know, that material is going to be much more absorbing than um, reflective or uh, or you can just sort of work together to create some kind of cool installation. So I would say you just pick your battles, <laughs> you know, sure. You want to give me your opinion. That's, that's fine. But, um, what I, what I really, the opinions that I secretly really care about that I'll never tell you is this person's, this person's, this person's, you know, which will tend to be like the interior designer or the client, or, um, I love looking to my, my, my coworkers and think to myself, like, is this okay? Like, what do you think? Just like when I'm designing and my, my assistants, I'm always looking over to them and saying like, what do you think? Is this, does this look like garbage? <laughs> like, or is this passable? Like, what do you, you know what I mean? So I guess it's sort of um, having that hierarchy of important opinions, you know, that matters. <laughs> you got to look over at your, uh, your assistant. Is this design brilliant or was I just really lazy here? What, what happened? And is they'll this... be like, Amanda, you were really lazy. And it's like, cool, noted. <laughs> <laughs> really? Cause I was really hoping you'd say it was brilliant. <laughs> oh, no, I, pre I really appreciate I appreciate the honesty and um, just the transparency of the process. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's all about the process is educate education again. You know, like learning. <laughs> you gotta you gotta learn. Uh, that's a skill that I would imagine you have to hone a lot harder than the people in the theater side is the the ability to say, "Oh, thank you so much for your input." I'm going to totally disregard what you're saying because you're not the most important person on my project right now. Thank you so much for your input. That's great. I really appreciate you telling me that you're not the interior designer though. You know, you have to right. like, you have to funnel down the chefs with their spoons and the soup to the two or three, uh, the, the chef, the sous chef and maybe the <laughs> yeah. line chef, you know, it's, it's just navigating. It's just, it's just navigating the, the situation. I, I am a big fan of, 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 um, like all input, you know, I, again, like I've said, I'm, I'll absorb it like a sponge. I'll genuinely, um, consider it, but you know, then it, like you said, it will, it gets whittled down and I, it's important to navigate certain other, um, opinions and, and you have to think to yourself, well, was, was that truly conducive to the situation or was this just like this person's personal, opinion like was this conducive to the building or the play or whatever or is this person just like hate this color for this personal reason you know what i mean <laughs> you just hate that color <laughs> but i mean it's you know um if you want to get it out then go ahead and get it out i'm here for it <laughs> so working with some leading mentors and you also have access to a lot of students these days 
where are you finding most of your inspiration or to be more specific, have you found a rare nugget of inspiration in a very unexpected place? Where do you find unexpected inspiration? Honestly, I think that everything that's going on right now is really inspiring in terms mm -hmm. of um, this sort of awakening that our country is having with uh, Black Lives Matter and more transparency with We Make Events or, you know, just the general awareness of movements that are going on. That really, that, that personally has been inspiring me to a, a degree that I... I didn't think was possible. I'm so moved, right? Like by the progress that we're making, the awareness, the, the donations. Um, and, you know, our background in entertainment or specifically my background in theater, I mean, we're all about storytelling, right? And, and that's the number one thing about what we do when we light a stage is, is storytelling. And so really watching all of these stories as, as hard or as, you know, frustrating as a lot of them are right now living in covid living in the black lives matter movement at the same time it's really like we are shedding light on on everyone's stories right now and i think that that is going to definitely change how we put on plays and how plays are written now even more so or i i just find that to be really inspiring that we're all sort of in this together um and yeah, I, I can't help but look at it from a from a, a storytelling perspective that that we are sort of having this conversation about diversity. We are finally having this raw and unfiltered conversation about what it's like to, um, you know, deal with COVID or be unemployed or be a, a Black Indigenous person of color in this country. So. I find that's been really inspiring just work, my work in terms of like plays and, and wanting to light those stories, wanting to help tell that story. So, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. For, for better or for worse, I would have, I, I, I share that sentiment. I feel like we're getting more raw and more honest. I feel like a lot of art is becoming even more uh, truthful and, and vulnerable. I feel like a lot of the sensationalized stories that we've been told in, in school are being exposed for the lies that they are now. You're like, no, that's, that's not the whole truth. And it requires art for us mm -hmm. to come out like, look, what you were told was not exactly true. We're going to explain to you how things really happened through this play. Mm -hmm. I, I share that with you. Uh, trying to think maybe maybe Hamilton would be a good example of that probably the probably the most popular opinion like hey this is the most popular uh, example what what you were told is not exactly true sure a uh, Hamilton yes Hamilton gotta love it uh it's it it has its merits in that way as well like of again bringing shedding light to to um the the of hip-hop that genre of of hip-hop or just um, yeah, the story itself, or just seeing more people of, of color and on stage that are truly more reflective of our country. I mean, that's really inspiring to see. And then, like, you think of other plays like, you know, Clybourne Park or David Mamet's Race or, um, you know, Spinning in a Butter, 
um, I mean, really, it's nice to look back on these plays and given the context of what's going on in in 2020. And it is, it's so much more enlightening to go back and read that material and, and mi- reread things that you may have missed when you first read that play. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, it's so important to do the work right now. And I think that's so exciting to do the work. And what I mean by doing the work is, you know, just talking about it, talking about the theater industry or Broadway. There's actually um, a petition that was going around. It still is called we see you wat.com white American theater. And it's basically a petition for all of um, the entire Broadway community of actors, uh, designers, um, just basically anybody who's involved in Broadway or just theater in general that are black or indigenous, you know, and have had their stories told, but not in the way that it should have been told. So they're trying to sort of bring awareness to, to that issue. And, and it's really great to see just everybody coming together and just having this conversation right now. That's inspiring. What can we do to encourage more diversity like that? That sounds like a, a conscious effort to like, hey, we need a we need more opinions from outside our bubble. Uh, what are other things we can do to encourage diversity of opinion? I I can't help but think about this from like an educator standpoint. Um, I, well, that's such a great question. I think about it in terms of like like how can we? I mean, one way we can encourage is diversity in the classroom or, or entertainment industry or theater or what have you is, you know, maybe creating content that is diverse, like more plays. Um, you know, where do your students see themselves in this play? Does this play celebrate diversity? Does it ignore it on purpose? You know, how, how can we facilitate this healthy dialogue? I also think another way to encourage diversity is just doing what we're doing now and like having this conversation it's also really important to i think admit mistakes you know what i mean like mm-hmm. admitting microaggressions admitting that we accidentally you know had a microaggression or you know didn't realize that we may or may not have been insensitive in this moment and it's okay and to admit it and to grow right i know we talked a lot a little bit about this at dinner but like encouraging diversity we talked a little bit about internships at dinner and kind of being able to carve that space out for, for people who want to get into this industry or like theater. Uh-huh. Um, and just sort of like, we can encourage diversity by, by creating internships that are more, I think, realistically attainable, like sort of doing away with the unpaid internships. Cause I think sometimes mm-hmm. that can be more exploitative than conducive to a student situation right? Um, because it sets up income inequality before their careers even start. And being a first gen student myself, um, you know, I had to pass up on some amazing theatrical or lighting things, you know, in New York or Chicago because I simply could not afford it. Um, and that's, and you know, you gotta, you gotta carve out your, your path another way. Such an interesting concept. Uh, there are, it's a concept I was recently ex- uh, exposed to is that sometimes people are too poor to get a job. 
And I, I don't know if a lot of people understand that that exists. Like, yeah, there is an opportunity available. I can't even afford to get to where that opportunity is. I think the only way around that is, is grants or, or, or to just completely get rid of unpaid internships because once I get there, I know if there's going to be some amount of compensation, then I can do it. You know, yeah. that's, that's a tough one. Yeah. I mean, the, with a very, the very nature of unpaid internships is a, a cyclical one. Yes. I, I, it's often they prop up more privileged students and continue to keep those who are in that $1.6 trillion student loan debt pool, like myself, down, you know, and it sort of perpetuates the notion that, that working for free is admissible and it's, it's not, which is, it's also really hard too, because in unpaid internships do tend to really still be a thing in specifically the arts or museums and, you know, trying to find that balance is, is really important. You know, it doesn't have to cost, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to pay the student an arm and a leg, but pay them reasonably right? Housing. Right. Where Can you help them with housing? Can you help them with food? I mean, having them pay for transportation, housing, you know, and then only giving them like a $25 meal voucher is like not realistic anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's a, so important to encourage diversity in that way in our, in our industry and theater and like all these cool, you know, th things that we do like dance and music or whatever is is sort of helping those internships become much more attainable for those students it's yeah. so easy to be blind to it too because uh, anybody who's currently partaking in a unpaid internship they see it as like yeah i'm working hard i had this opportunity and i took it not even realizing the the amount of privilege that's necessary in order to take an mm -hmm. unpaid internship to let's say i mean to just let's say it's a six month internship to not have an income for six months that requires somebody else to be supporting you. And yeah. yes, after that six months, you have an even, you have another leg up. You've just taken your one leg up and you've put a second leg up because you've had six months next to a big name LD. And, and now you've got six months in the industry that you may or may not have earned through a, a connection or something and you know it, how you're you're doubly privileged yeah it's it's really scary I, I have a so many students that really love this industry just like you know we they really want to be involved but you know they can't they can't take they can't afford to take those risks you know they're right. also you know simultaneously taking care of their family or or working three jobs I had to work three jobs and put myself through school. You know what I mean? It's, it's really, really hard. And as much as like myself or, um, you know, my students want to follow around an LD and, and they should, you know, if the opportunity is right, but they couldn't fly across. I couldn't fly, you know, across the country and work, like you said, six months without pay because I just don't have any support except myself. And right. it's, it's scary because you, you, and, and it's disheartening too, because you, you really want to get really immersed in this world. But like you said, it is a networking heavy industry. And, and sometimes that's 
a great thing. And other times it's in this case, it can be, you know, hard. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I feel like it's scary enough to get a degree in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, like it's so expensive just to get a degree. I think we also talked a little bit about this at dinner, but it's like scary enough to embark upon getting a degree in the first place. Yeah. When like only a third of the country has a college degree and only like 10% has a graduate degree. I mean, and if you don't have a degree, then there's the stigma to it. Right. Right. Uh, so it's just like, you're damned how, if you do damned if you don't there. Yeah. Like how can we, how can we make this, this, this entertainment industry, you know, just more accessible. It's not to say that, you know, we don't want to help. This is the most giving industry ever. We, all we want to do is, you know, invite like our misfits and our loved ones and our friends and, and kind of, because we're family, right. but there are other opportunities that just could be, um, you know, could be a little more realistic for, for others who really want to experience that, which yep. come, you know, and then we get to grants and scholarships and what have you. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a great topic. I want to, uh, I'll totally acknowledge my own privilege on that one. My parents were very aware of college grants. And even as a, uh, a straight white cis normative male, I was able to get grants to go to a junior college in Northern California. And I had a great theater program there. And uh, my schooling was not terribly expensive and the things that I couldn't afford were covered by grants. And those are the things that just knowing that grants are available is a privilege that I acknowledge. There's a lot of people that don't even know it. And even if they did know about it, they would be unwilling to take it thinking it's a handout or something. And that's, that's mm -hmm. not the case. Those yeah. grants are there to give people the opportunity to take the unpaid internships. Those exactly. Are yeah. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, I don't think you should feel bad about that. I think it's great. I mean, I will, I will circle back to what you just said though, about like not even realizing that they're there. I mean, that's, that's a, that's a big thing. Like, you know, especially being like a first gen student like myself, I, I had no help with navigating the higher ed system. And had I known better, I, I mean, who knows? I don't know. Um, maybe I'll, I would be somewhere else. Don't, don't know. But, um, you know, like a lot of these students just don't realize that there are so many arts programs out there that, and or grants and scholarships, and it's not a handout. It's, it's, it's just like, you know, no, normally with grants, you do have to do a little work. You know, you have to yeah. have great grades. You have to maybe write an essay. Um, you know, so it's not a handout. It's you're, you're still doing the work, but I mean, why not? Right. Like this is, absolutely. this is the opportunity, um, to, to, to take advantage of that. I mean, I didn't know how I was going to pay for my flight when I was applying to MFAs in Chicago and I straight up emailed the Dean and was like, Hey, <laughs> is there any way that this university can help me? And I didn't even, I didn't even know that I could ask that if it wasn't for like a mentor of mine uh, in the theater department, you know, it's, it's, it's granting permission for students um, to, to, to be forward like that and to take what is theirs because that money is theirs. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. There are philanthropists all over this world that are they, that's all they want to do is get more people into the education system and get them and lift them out of poverty. There are so many people out there and that is their goal. There are uh, organizations that they're designed to get money into the pockets of people who have a chance at, at, at increasing our opinion pool, our diversity pool. That's it's out there. They exist. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. When I think of the people that will never even know that those exist, it makes me so sad because they're out there. I would imagine there's just funds sitting in bank accounts, collecting That's- interest, right collecting (laughs) dust you know absolutely but that's what's so exciting about what's happening right now is that we can just try and be as transparent as we possibly can be with with everything you know here's this foundation here's this foundation here's this here's this here's this like sometimes it can be oversaturating and, and, and overwhelming but at the same time like this is the time to do it you know what I mean? Like there are so many opportunities and grants out there right now specifically that are trying to help artists or designers during this time of COVID. And, you know, today's September 1st and it's it's really exciting to be pushing out this information of we make events and save our stages and all this kind of like really great information. So, you know, all we can do is just share the info constantly just throw it out there in in the public yeah for you and i like we had to if we wanted to know about stuff like we had to find a phone book or a pamphlet or a flyer and then fill out a form and mail it in it's not like that anymore you can click your way to a scholarship or a grant you know you can uh, you can submit everything online it's not nearly as as difficult as it was for us Mm mm-hmm yeah, I mean, again, I just, I encourage all of my, my, my lighting students or just any of my stage students to just, what if, right? Like, what if you just Googled design, lighting design scholarship? I mean, LDI yep. has, you know, scholarships, yep. um, you know, artistsrelief.org and the TCG Theater Communications Group has some great you know, scholarships, um, the foundation of the contemporary arts was, I saw something online where there was specifically giving away grants, um, for any artist in music theater, anything that, you know, maybe you were in the midst of putting on a show or you were in the midst of doing like a cool art installation. And because of COVID you had to shut it down. Well, here's $1,500 because COVID screwed you. You know what I mean? Like they're Mm -hmm. out there. You just, yeah, you just got to Google it or, or at least better yet, just, just, um, now what we do is retweet or, you know, Instagram. Yeah. Those Gen Z's or yeah. Gen Z's yeah. doing, sharing the info but, on TikTok. I don't know. <laughs> there's even, uh, there's even grants out there and scholarships available for specifically for people of color because they're the, the most underrepresented in our industry. And I know that there's a, a lot of the, a few of the conservative Audience members will uh, will balk at the word affirmative action, but those are the things that are available to people because the the other scholarships are so flooded with people who already know about them mm-hmm. that sometimes you have to separate. You have to, you know, like no, look, these ones specifically need to be set aside 
for the people of color who who just heard about these uh the plant these grants and stuff and they're they're available and they 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 need to be to get those people into our industry so that we can hear those voices yes exactly like representation matters and and it's just um i our our industry has gotten a lot better i think but we still have a, a far ways to go but we're we're you know it's there's change it's slow but but it's it's happening um you know in terms of like the the trite concept of being a woman in the entertainment industry you know like that's changing you know that's it it, and it really sort of i don't know it it, i feel like that never really should have been an issue to begin with considering we had pioneers like gene rosenthal or jennifer tipton or darren musser or just these like awesome you know women um in the industry but i digress uh (laughs) that's not an aggression at all i mean in terms of like the grants and and yes i mean representation matters and again like i've mentioned i mean a lot of black indigenous people of color that don't that can't afford these opportunities like myself i couldn't afford these opportunities um you know it it is important to to seek out those those grants and those just you know I think Disney, I think I saw something online where Disney specifically was having like a diversity scholarship, you know, so they're, they're out there and that's awesome. it's just really important that we're patient and we, we, uh, we carve that space for underprivileged students. You know, it's really important because they, they are so talented. You would just never know because they can't afford the opportunity. Let's, let's afford, let's help them afford the opportunity. That's a great way of saying it. We are just about out of time. I wanted to ask one last question. Yeah. What are your thoughts on the next generation? I know that you get to meet lots of students. Are you seeing yourself? Are you seeing a lot of motivation? Are you seeing a a diverse group of people coming up? I know we've left a terrible industry for them to come into these last few months, but are you seeing uh, a lot of new fresh blood in the in the next generation oh of course yeah i i think that that students now are are excited more than ever i think a lot of that has to do with the adaptation of technology i mean you know we vr is just all the rage right now and Mm -hmm. given covid i mean this is how we can access those nuanced areas in our industry and so i know that that's going to be such an exciting endeavor for students who want to get involved in this way. Like Unreal Engine 5 is going to be coming out. We're already seeing that implemented um, in theaters, in just like just media in general. And I think that's, I think that's what I see for the next generation or just, you know, this Gen Z to come, you know, yeah. I, it's already happening. I think that's really exciting. We're going to be utilizing more of our programs, of our online programs, like Vectorworks or Previs, but also implementing things like, you know, Unreal Engine. And I don't know. I just, I think it's, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic. Yeah. For them and for us, I know right now it's hard to see through that, but we will adapt. We are adapting and yeah, the next group will adapt and you know, we've already seen some pretty amazing things from a lot of young, talented, 
designers out there, I'm constantly blown away. I, I, I teach, I'm an adjunct teacher in lighting, but at the same time, they, my students really teach me like, <laughs> I know that sounds cliche, <laughs> but it's very true. You know, they, it's, it's so true. Ah, they're so well positioned right now to be in a technical age because that's all we have right now. You know, we don't have a live performance. Everything is being streamed right now. Everything's being filmed in tiny little theaters and uh, most of the atmospheres are all digital. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in a really good place to adapt that, that you and I didn't. That's true. We're, we're behind the eight ball on that one. They're, they're, they're the ones they are so well positioned. Yeah. I'm optimistic. I see it to be much more inclusive. It's inclusive now, but I, I think it's going to be even more so. And with that, you know, comes really cool technology, like you said. So I think they're going to do wonders for our industry. Ah, <laughs> uh, what a what a ray of sunshine to end this on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Amanda. I really appreciate your time. This is a this has been great. This was really fun, and I'm really so honored to to be on this. So thank you so much for having me, Chris. 